I'm Sam Graham Felson. I'm Avi Klein. I'm a novelist. Avi is a therapist. And you're listening to Hey Man, the advice podcast for men. Uh, this week, we are joined by a special guest. He is a New York Times bestselling author. His name is David Epstein. His book is called Range. Uh, it's a book about non-specialists. It's a book about people who have taken lots of meandering paths in life uh, and about how that's a good thing, about how uh, quitting and sampling and trying out lots of different things can actually help you uh, thrive in life. Uh, Dave is a journalist who uh, came through Sports Illustrated and ProPublica. Before that, he was a scientist who was getting his PhD, and his diverse experiences led him to write really interesting books, and uh, we hope you enjoy this podcast. The thing that just struck me that I wanted to ask you about first was um, kind of the personal story behind why you even decided to write this book. And, you know, your own trajectory um, is really interesting. I mean, I don't think anyone in the world has had quite the career trajectory that you have had. So um, if you could just walk us through that, maybe even starting with uh, your uh, mission at age 16 to become an astronaut to, to, to how you got to the point where you wrote uh, Range, that would be great. Oh, okay, so you kind of want the long version. <laughs> I, that's, I love the long version, yes. Okay, and, and by the way, one of the things I learned in the reporting of this book is that the, that the unique career path, you know, the, the like singularly unique career path for people who end up feeling fulfilled turns out to be the norm, not the exception. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the y- uniqueness is kind of normal, as weird as that sounds. But um, yeah, so, so you mentioned when I was 16, I was dead set on going to the U.S. Air Force Academy and being a test pilot and then an astronaut. And I even got as far as you have to get a congressional recommendation. Um, and I did that. I did the physical test. I remember for whatever reason I had to throw a basketball from my knees. I'm not sure if that's something they still do. But Dave, one second. Yeah. Can you just yeah. – I've always been curious, like, when people say they had to get a congressional recommendation. Like, how the hell does that work? <laughs> like, did you know a congressman? Like, how do you get a recommendation from a congressman? I did not know a congressman, although I did have sort of a one degree of connection. Um, you know, my parents are attorneys and in Chicago, and there was a judge they knew well whose father uh, was a congressman. And so that was one thing you could do. But there is like a totally a formal process because congressmen know this is this is a thing they actually like doing, right? It's kind of good. I think it's like a good thing for them to do right. um, and good PR to have. To, to give recommendations to people who get into the service academies. So in this case, I, I did try to use a one-degree uh, or, I guess, two-degree personal connection, but there is a formal process um, that, okay. that all Congress members have that you can, you can you know, you submit materials. Basically, basically you apply for the recommendation, Such a funny old-school way of getting into the Air Force. Anyway, so then you had to do yeah. the physical, all these physical tests. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, so I really did the stuff you know, that, that they had to do. And sort of at the last minute, um, I started to decide that maybe this wasn't the thing for me because one, I started to feel a little less like taking orders, I guess you could say, um, you know, late, late in high school and wondering if maybe that was the best place for me, if I was starting to feel that way. And also if I was going to go there and be a pilot, like I wanted to go there to major in, you know, aeronautical engineering or something like that. And I was also starting to enjoy some aspects of the humanities more late in high school and thinking, hey, maybe, you know, I want to experiment with some other things and try some writing. And I didn't want to go to the Air Force Academy if I was going to want to try a lot of writing, basically. So I remember my high school counselor 
my, you know, when I decided to apply to Columbia, which was the only school I visited because I had a cousin that lived nearby. So I just like went over there. Um, when I was visiting him, you know, my counselor was like, okay, Columbia university and the air force Academy, you've got like, you know, an institution that's known as like one of the most conservative and one that's known, you know, as like one of the most liberal, like my, my counselor was totally baffled that these could be my, my two choices. But I've actually learned in like research on creativity that, um, and not saying I'm, you know, whatever, I'm not trying to say I'm especially creative or anything, but that, that when you see personality tests, creative types tend to kind of contain multitudes where they have contradictory aspects of their personality. Uh, and so they can be sort of a little bit hard to figure out, but anyway, so I, I don't end up going there. Of course I end up going um, to Columbia and I decide, well, okay, I'm going to study political science. I take a class in political science, decide that's not for me. And to be honest, the way I end up studying what I was studying is I went there and I, I was a walk-on runner and I really hit it off with a senior biomedical engineer who was, I looked up to because he was the best guy in my event and we became like really good friends. And he told me like, go out to this campus in Arizona that Columbia leases in the summer, take a class out there. It's great. Trust me. And I was pretty much Coming from public high school, I was pretty overwhelmed initially. Um, I didn't realize half the school was going to be from private schools. And so the main reason I went and did that class, now you're getting the really long version, by the way. So yeah. please feel free to tell me to condense. I, I don't think I've ever told it in this long a version in like an interview setting. Um, I went out, I decided that I wanted a lighter class load during track season so I could try to have a better track season. So I decided to take a summer class out in this campus the, the Biosphere 2 campus that Columbia was leasing out in Arizona. And I get out there and I'm totally blown away in the desert. You know, it's like I grew up in a city and this is like life spread out horizontally, you know, clinging to its little vein of water for life. And I'm just like, I want to know how this basin and range formed geologically. I, whatever gets me more of this, I want to know how these systems work. I'm super curious about it. Whatever gets me more travel to places like this, that is what I will study. And so I come back and I end up studying geology. Uh, and then pick up astronomy from another summer in Arizona. So now I'm like, okay, I'm going to be a scientist, you know? And I think at the time, nobody thought that climate change would become as sort of widely accepted for the most part as it was at the time. So it was like, you know, I want to contribute to, to the data gathering for that. And I started in grad school. Um, but sort of some of my, you know, to training to be a scientist and some of my first lab experiences, I was hoping to find out that I would want to do that for the rest of my life. And I sort of found out that that wasn't really the case, that, um, you know, you start asking yourself, am I the type of person who wants to spend my whole life learning one thing new to the world? Or am I the type of person who wants to spend shorter spans of time learning things new to me and, and sharing them and synthesizing them? And I was definitely the, the latter because I noticed when you right when you start grad school, you basically get pressured to try to find something to study. So because to get your Ph.D., you have to basically, you know, research something that nobody else has. So you get pressured to pick off something that is typically so obscure that nobody else really cares about it. So nobody else would possibly be researching it. And that, that's how you make your name, which seemed kind of like a perverse incentive system to me. Um, and a couple things came together. So as I was starting to think maybe this is, you know, I was living in a tent in the Arctic and starting to think like this is not, this is probably so not. So this is like, so you're living in a tent in, by the Arctic, like northern Canada or like the north, like what we consider the North Pole, like. Northern. No, well, I was in the lower Arctic, so this I was. This isn't about, really like globe trotting. We've got Midwest, New York City, the desert, the Arctic. Europe. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and then the first when I first started grad school, the summer after my senior year, actually, this wasn't even in grad school, but I worked on a ship um, in the <laughs> Pacific Ocean, which was pretty interesting because I had learned some like, and this was just this was not as a student. This was just like grunt work in the place where I where I worked in a lab. Um, 
I had just learned like some computer systems that they were going to run on this boat. And there was like, you know, a flyer up on the wall. It was like, who wants to work on this boat? Uh, and so I applied for that. And that was quite an experience. That was a, I, that was a scientific expedition boat or just like a boat <laughs> that, yeah, that no, you knew no, the was, technology was, about? It was a scientific expedition. Yeah. It was bouncing sound waves off the ocean floor, okay. like off British Columbia to to image tectonic plate boundaries, you know, ostensibly for earthquake prediction type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was a really interesting experience. I remember the the there's like rooms that are connected and share a bathroom and, and they're two bunk mates, but they're never in the room at the same time because they have like alternate work shifts. And the guy who was in the adjacent room at the same time when I was where we like shared a bathroom was the cook. And he had been on the boat when it got, uh, when it was off the coast of Somalia and pirates had tried to take it oh, over the year right. before. Um, and so there were like bullet holes off like one of the containers on the back of the ship. It was pretty interesting. Wow. Um, but anyway, that, that's a different story. So but, ju- just to pause for one second, uh, um, uh, as you were like switching these different, actually, you know, what? answer this after you decide to drop out from uh, your, your PhD program and stop being a scientist, um, continue on your trajectory. But I, I'm just curious, like all along, like I keep thinking to myself, like I wonder what Dave's parents were thinking the whole time <laughs> when, like their son, like you know, is making these dramatic switches over and over and over. And I, I'm curious, like what your conversations were like with them, or whether you, you know, like, and and also just what kind of, um, like how you how what your family culture was like that you felt empowered to make these radical transitions. Because I think a lot of people, you know, I feel like a lot of people who stick in one career track for a lot of their life in part are doing it because they're intimidated by the idea of disappointing their parents. Yeah. And, you know, um, I mean, I think I still have extended family who are like positive. Just next year, I'm going to go to law school. (laughs) Um, But, you know, like when I started, when I major in geology and pick up astronomy, it's like you come meet the family and I think you can see the wheels turning. It's like geological astronomical law. That could be a growth field. (laughs) I see where he's going with this. Um, but my, from my, from the standpoint of my parents, like they really never said a word. I mean, I would say my parents were more sort of pulley than pushy, and that that was you know sort of like Roger Federer's parents. And I think that was largely because I was so hard on myself. Like if I got a bad grade, I was going to intercept it before it got to them at home. Um, I was going to be way more disappointed than than they were. And so I think, you know, th- this is sort of like when I was a college track athlete, and you realize that a big part of coaching is that. Some people need to be managed by the coach in order to train more. You know, that's very common. Some people don't want to train enough. And then other people um, need to be managed by the coach to train less. And that's pretty important, too. And I think I was in that camp um, where I needed to be managed to kind of pull back. So I don't think they were worried that I was, like, you know, going to become listless or anything like by the that. Way, for, so, so, so I, again, I don't want to pull you off your, your um, career story. But um, for listeners who don't know, um, Dave – was a walk-on on the track team, and then, which you've already told us, but what you didn't mention is that you ended up not just making the team, but breaking the record in your event, which is, which is like <laughs> mind-blowing to me. It almost sounds like an apocryphal story, but you were that kind of driven person, um, you know, that, that you went from being not even a recruit to somebody who ended up breaking the record in the event. Is there like a 30-second version, compressed version of how the hell that happened? <laughs> Um, okay. Compressed version. Well, I came to the sport late. I played football, basketball, baseball in high school. I'm a small guy and I wanted to do college sports and I 
did track one season to like try to prepare for football, realized I really loved it and improved a lot. Even though I wasn't that good, I was improving rapidly. Um, and I really liked the, really liked the culture. We had very strong track culture in my high school because we had a lot of Jamaican guys. So it was like the, in a way, the cool sport to do where it isn't at a lot of other places. And I just sort of loved it. And when I went to school, what I would say is being a walk-on was a total blessing in disguise because nobody cared what I was doing. So I didn't have to score for the team. I didn't have to travel with the team. So I got the first two years to just experiment with what kind of training worked for me because normally people just get put through a cut cookie cutter training program. And in doing that, um, I found a type of training that works really well for me. And then I just improved like rocket fuel, like almost every race. So I got two years to where nobody cared if I was achieving anything and I could just figure out what kind of training worked for me. So that was a blessing in disguise. So it's very much like one of the subtexts of range is, you know, sometimes the things that you can do that cause the most rapid short-term improvement undermine your long-term development. And in this case, since I didn't need to make really short-term improvements, I was able to sort of focus more on long-term development. And that, that was really helpful. Um, yeah. You so, know, I'm, I'm curious, David, um, two of like one of my big regrets in life is, uh, I had two different opportunities when I was right before college and then in, during college to go to Nepal and, and live in a monastery and, and study Buddhism intensively. And, and I didn't take those opportunities because I was scared um, to throw myself off of what I thought was my trajectory. And I'm really appreciating uh, that you have a kind of fearlessness or a, um, a, just a curiosity about trying something new and throwing yourself into it. And for someone who's not who doesn't have that, I'm wondering if you could explain that a little bit, like how, how you cultivate that. You, you know, and, as an aside, you just reminded me of something that I actually didn't even remember. Uh, I think that I just remembered it for the first time in several years, which is that, and I don't want to, you know, take you off track here, but I have a digressive brain that That's, I very much have to try to organize <laughs> so on the page. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're all about it. <laughs> yeah, so I try to fool book readers into thinking I have an organized brain, you know, but that takes a lot of editing. Um, and what what you just reminded me of was when I first tried to get into writing, I decided to like, you know, I was like ignorant enough not to realize how many demands like, you know, writers, prominent writers have on their time. And so I, I sort of cold contacted Lawrence Gonzalez, the author of Deep Survival, mm-hmm. um, because I noticed he was like living near where my parents were living and I had really enjoyed the book. And I sent him some like writing samples or whatever. And eventually we connected and you know, I was in my mid twenties, I guess. And he, he, I remember one of the advice he gave me was, Oh man, like you could go like work on a Russian fishing vessel for five years and then come back and start. Um, and you will have some interesting things to write about. And, and at the time I thought like, that's crazy. I'm already behind, Yeah. you know, but now I, now that I have no idea what I'm going to do next, like truly no idea. I, I realized that feeling behind is, um, you know, it's not, you're not really behind at that uh-huh. point. Uh-huh. You learn from anything you do. But in, in terms of that willingness to take leaps, I think a lot of it is actually comes from um, I, I get like really I guess I don't have a very high tolerance for sticking with things that I don't think are a good fit for me. Mm. Um, and so sometimes I start to feel pretty desperate to to get away, actually. And so I think that's that sort of helps propel me to look for, you know, that match quality, that the degree of fit between what I'm doing um, and my interests and abilities. And I also, you know, it probably helps that I saw John Urschel, the the NFL player who decided to leave mid-career and become a mathematician. Mm -hmm. Um, He, I saw something he said, he said the things people were like, this is crazy. Like, why wouldn't you just play a couple more years and, 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 you know, max out the money you can make. And he said, the things I like to do are cheap. Like I like to do math 
and read and play chess. And all those things are really cheap. And I feel the same way. The things I like to do are cheap. <laughs> run, you know, go outside and, and read. And yeah. so I was never that oriented toward like maximizing my earning necessarily. Um, and I do get like desperate if I have a job I don't like. And I don't know. I guess I was also sort of sort of at some point realized that this concept that some people call skill stacking, where it's like you don't have to be the best at any one thing, but if you can kind of accumulate disparate experiences or skills, you can overlap them in a way where you don't really have to compete with people directly. Mm-hmm. You can kind of do your own thing. Yeah. And I for sure realized that at Sports Illustrated. Like when I got there as a temp fact checker, I was six years older than the people I was doing the temp fact checking for, but pretty soon realized that my what I would say are my rather ordinary science skills were totally extraordinary in the context of a sports magazine. And so while 40 other people are waiting in line to be the next NFL beat writer and, you know, they basically have to wait for the top person to leave, if I could, I was only in competition with myself if I could do something different. And so, you know, I went from being the the temp fact checker to the youngest senior writer there in, in very short order, very much because I recognized how useful it was, um, you know, I didn't in, in in science being a good writer was one of my advantages, and then in writing, you know, having a science background was one of was one of my advantages. So it's like taking something that's ordinary and bringing it something where it's extraordinary. So I think I also proactively started to realize that that zigzagging could be a real benefit, and I didn't want to be in zero sum competition with people who are trying to do the same exact thing. Basically, does that make any sense? Totally. Yeah. So one of the things that that you said, um, I mean, all of what you said resonated, but one thing resonated particularly with me, which is um, the this kind of intolerance for doing stuff that um, you don't really like or that, that bores you or whatever. And um, for me, that was actually like, it took me a while to feel a sense of pride in my path. Like for a while, I just felt guilty. Like there's something wrong with me. I mean, when I, I worked for Obama, I had the good luck slash, I guess, intuition to go work for him early. Um, I had a good job in the 2008 campaign that would have definitely translated into a good job in the White House. And when you have a good job in the White House, you can either become um, famous or wealthy a lot more easily, right? And so when I decided not to go to the White House and then decided to do something totally different, which was pursue fiction writing, which I had zero experience in whatsoever. I wrote my first word of fiction at like age 32. Definitely my friends from the Obama world were like, you're insane. What the hell are you doing? They were also like, you're selfish. Like, you're married. You're going to have kids someday. You are forfeiting the opportunity to make money. (laughs) What are you doing? You know? Um, And um, part of what, and part of what I had a hard time, you know, responding to them with um, was the fact that inside I was wondering like, you know, what's wrong with me? Like, why can't I just be satisfied? Like, this is, most people would think it's really cool to work in politics and work in the White House. Like, is there something wrong with me that I'm this, like, like, am I just, like, some depressive that, like, just doesn't like every job? You know what I mean? So I wonder, yeah. like, like, um, you know, um, if that's something that you struggled with, just, like, you know, that sense, like, is there something wrong with me for a while before you got to the point of like feeling secure and comfortable in the fact that you're like, all right, I'm cool leaving this for something else. hundred percent. That like what you said completely resonates with me where I would, I would stop and ask myself and I would want to do something and I'd get excited about it. But I would also be asking myself like, why do I seem, you know, not to be able to stick as long as other people around me. Um, and, and every time I left something, the advice was, 
to just stay a bit longer, you know? Like, I don't understand that advice, really, because it's like, if if they, I think people must think that you're just being emotional and then you're going to end up staying because it doesn't seem like their advice would be, oh, you're going to move, you're obviously going to move, but, but you know, stick it out a little longer now. I, I don't totally understand that, but no, absolutely, absolutely. Honestly, I still, there's still a part of me that feels that way because I, I truly have no idea what I'm going to do now. Um, and when I was leaving SI, right after the sports gene comes out, right, it's like, I had a comfortable job there with a nice like window over Sixth Avenue on the 32nd floor and all this stuff, and then went to ProPublica, which at the time was not nearly as prominent as it is now. Um, and you know, there you're elbow to elbow with somebody else, and it's like a a step down the ladder and all this kind of stuff. Actually, actually, that reminds me. Probably one of the goofier things I did was when I got hired as a staff writer at Sports Illustrated, I kind of got frustrated that I was not. I wanted to do more investigative stuff, and I got frustrated that I wasn't really learning that much, and my investigative reporting partner um, kind of left SI on bad terms. Um, not not bad terms, just she was just exasperated and, and decided to leave. And I had been learning from her, and so then there was sort of nobody left who I could really you know, learn investigative skills from. And so ProPublica was a startup. So ProPublica, for people who don't know, is an investigative reporting nonprofit that is um, – yeah, is is really good and growing. Uh, founded by investigative editor of the New York Times and the former head editor of the Wall Street Journal. Um, and I saw it was starting up, and she told me like, "This place is going to be awesome. This is going to be like an all-star team of investigative. You know, it's going to be really cool." And so I applied for an internship there when I was a staff writer at SI. Huh. Uh, and the Eric Umansky, who was the internship coordinator there, he's still an editor there wrote to me, responded and said, like, do you realize what you're applying for? <laughs> um, and I said, yeah, yeah, I do. And he said, all right, well, if you want it, you know, you can have it. And it, and as the way it played out, it was right after, shortly after Selena Roberts and I, we co-broke the story that A-Rod had, had used steroids. Oh, it's shortly after that, I, yeah, I, I arrived at a, I arrived at ProPublica and like the next day was scanning documents for Michael Graybell, the transportation reporter. So you did um, actually start as an intern? I, I, well, I, so I started, I left SI and I said, I'm frustrated. Um, I'm going to go, I want to go. I tried to pitch it to them as career development saying, if I get a good story there, I'll pitch it back to a timing publication. This is professional development. I hope my job will be here for me when I get back. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kindly was. So I left for three months and went and interned at ProPublica um, and then came back and they, they let me have my job back. But it wasn't a sure thing at the time. Uh, and that even seems a little crazy to me in retrospect. But it turned out to be, one, an incredible learning experience. For sure made me a better reporter, no question about it. Uh, and it kind of ended up being a good professional experience because then ProPublica tried to recruit me back, which helped me sort of move up at SI. And then I ended up going back to work for ProPublica eventually anyway. So it turned out to be like truly one of the greatest things I did. But it was a little crazy at the time, and I'm lucky that they allowed me to come back. So to back but, up, just to back up in your in your story um, uh, for a second, though, because I've always found this one of the most interesting parts of your career. After you left um, your PhD program, um, doing you know incredibly high level, nitty gritty scientific exploration, writing stuff that you know would later be published in academic papers, um, you decide to be a journalist. But you go to like, you know, a, a tabloid. Like you, you started out writing for the New York Daily News. That's right. Um, yeah, yeah. And and you were the you were a crime reporter, right? Um, yeah. And I always, I mean, that's a, just another yeah. thing that I, I've always found fascinating about your career. You did 
the kind of um, like in some respects that kind of reporting got more glamorous due to people like David Simon, you know, the creator of The Wire, <clears throat> you know, and uh, all these TV shows that glamorize crime, crime reporters. But like my wife works at the New York Times. I mean, um, I, I won't speak for her, but it seems to me that like the, the Metro desk is not seen as like the glamorous place to work at at the New York Times, you know, um, working, and, you know, reporting yeah. on murders and on unimportant people. And that's, that's what you were doing. Can you just talk a tiny bit about that? Um, yeah. And if, it, if it's not glamorous doing it at the New York Times, you can imagine that <laughs> is the daily news. Um, you, I don't know if I should mention though, there's like one very important like career thing that happened before that. And I don't know if we should go back or just skip over it, but um, like, Go for it. If it's important, okay. I want to hear about it. Okay. So, I mean, one of the main reasons that I, I got propelled into writing when I did is I'd had a friend uh, and training partner who was one of the top-ranked runners in his event in his age group in the country who dropped dead at the end of a race. Mm. And I was wondering, you know, he was the first in his family of Jamaican immigrants who was going to go to college. Good student was for sure, you know, was already getting recruited as an underclassman athlete. And uh, I wondered how that could happen. You know, and, and our local newspaper said, oh, a heart attack. And I realized I don't even know what that means, heart attack, for someone in this, you know, this state of health and this age. Eventually, I asked his family to sign a waiver uh, to allow me to gather up his medical records and kind of investigate what happened. And it turned out he had this disease caused by a single gene mutation that's like almost always missed or misdiagnosed and is almost is by far accounts for the most cases of um, sudden cardiac death in athletes. And eventually as time went on and I learned more about this, I decided I wanted to write about sudden cardiac death in athletes for a popular audience, not like people like me who are spending their disposable income on Scientific American or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I'd grown up reading Sports Illustrated and I decided I wanted to try to write about sudden cardiac death in athletes for Sports Illustrated. And so that was sort of my, um, you know, the underlying reason that, that propelled me into writing when I did, it just got to a point where I said, I don't want to put this off anymore. I want to try to actually do it. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so that indeed was like my first cover story at SI, mm -hmm. but that, that's a crazy story in itself that yeah. it got first got rejected. And then the Olympic marathon trials, cause I was a still a fact checker. The Olympic marathon trials came to central park for the 2008 U S team. And the guy ranked sixth in the country dropped dead, like 15 blocks from our office. Hmm. And they were, someone came and was like, do, do you still want to write about sudden cardiac death in athletes? Hmm. And so like I was a fact checker and then, you know, it looked like we had done like a year, two years worth of research in a week then hmm. after that. But, um, so that, that was really my, my reason for doing that, uh, for getting into writing when I did. Okay. So now to the daily news, right? So the daily news, and I realized I couldn't go straight to sports illustrated. So the daily news after doing some neighborhood writing for sort of neighborhood publications, one called the villager, I'm not really sure if it still exists, but, um, and I was a fact checker in New York Press for personal ads, which, oh man, like, <laughs> if you, if those you, uh, were seriously raunchy personal ads. I remember those. Yeah, fact checking for that just meant like you verify the person's like address so we can build them essentially. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's right. When you when you have like one inch, this was like, you know, you have like like a half inch of space in the back of the paper to advertise your fetish essentially. Yeah, that's yeah. what it was. And so people have to be like, you know, it was like. Twitter, you had to be like really kind of clever and quick and that. So that was quite an experience. Um, but then when I get to the daily news, first I get rejected for an internship, then I kind of get accepted and they want me to work starting from midnight to the morning. 
Um, and of course, nothing happy that's going in the daily news happens between midnight and 10 a.m. Uh, you're the only reporter in the office, wow. and you have to try to listen to a bunch of police scanners, and you learn the 10 code, which is the, the way officers talk to each other, and decide what to go out on, which is like a particularly ridiculous job for someone, like one of the few people who didn't drive, you know, have a car. But anyway, <laughs> um, and then there's all these people, like these sort of random news tipster type people who you'll get a call from someone who'll be like, hey, hey, this is Vinny. There's yellow tape going on, you know, around the house out here. Like, you should come out here. It's definitely something, probably a hostage situation. And you're like, Vinny, who are you again? He's like, no, don't worry. Long time, long time tipster. You're like, all right. You know, and so there's just like this network of people who would kind of call in and try to help you figure out. Because you had to try to figure out, like, you're the only person there. What should you run out on, essentially? Um, and some of the night photographers had been like insurance inspectors. So they were like, car crash out here. I'm telling you, this one is like foul play. Um, and it was not, I, I had difficulty with the sleep during the day, awake during the night schedule for sure. Um, so when I was done, I would like try to buy all the food I would need for the day because I probably wouldn't leave again because I was so tired, mm. but it was an incredible boot camp for getting into, uh, reporting. Like I was lucky that the guy had been doing it for a long time left and I had, they trained me on it a little bit and suddenly it's like, you know, these aren't, you can't do any of these stories by picking up a phone book or Googling someone and calling them. Like the people you're needing to talk to are not on Google, you know, and not in the phone book. You have to get out on the street at night and go find people. And so you start to learn how to track people down, um, you know, how to, uh, how to like deal with people in difficult situations. Um, you know, that there was that case in New York where the officer was going down the stairwells of that housing project yeah. and he had his gun drawn and he accidentally fired right, in a right. ricochet and killed someone. I'd been up and down those, I don't know that exact building, but those, those housing projects, um, you know, with just a notebook. And as you, re that's, that kind of made me realize like how fearful that police officer must've been. Cause you, you know, it's not as safe as like Toys R Us in Times Square, but probably still nothing's going to happen. So it was like odd to me how, mm. how, you know, how on guard must've been. But, um, it was just like a great boot camp for reporting. And Did I've you, always suggested that to other like young journalists, but people don't really want to take you up on that. So um, we're going to dive into the advice question now um, from, Wait, from the, our... The, what, one last point. Yeah, you yeah, mentioned yeah. glamour of that kind of reporting. And, and I always thought it was odd that we, we you know, glamorize reporting on deaths abroad and then stigmatize reporting on deaths in our own streets. And, mm. and while, you know, I was... I eventually... You know, there were some aspects where I, I sort of didn't have control over my own ethics at the Daily News, you know, that 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 led me to not want to keep that job for that much longer. But um, I do think everyone who died by violence, at least, you know, when I was there, would end up in the paper in some way or another. And I think there was something to be said for that, you know, and sometimes you notice trends. And, and so I think that's that's an important thing to do, um, even if there isn't even if it's not always perfectly done in the papers, you know, did did that. Um... Now, now I need to ask you one more question about the Daily News. I mean, I assume that sometimes you would show up to a crime scene and would you see a, a dead body? Sometimes. And sometimes. like, how did, did you get like Not shaken usually. by that stuff? Did you ever get nightmares or just like get psychologically affected by just how dark the subject matter was that you were dealing with? Yeah, in, in a way, but I don't think, I guess I'm not, I wouldn't say I was traumatized by it. I mean, it's definitely... You know, I, I was unnerved by it sometimes. I remember the first time I went to report on a homicide and like the other reporters, and, and this was one where we weren't like rushing to the scene. It was basically people were at a police precinct to see if they could catch the accused person. And it was like a, 
you know, 15 year old who freaked out in a fight and killed a 14 year old, something like that, you know, not, just a bad scene all around. And if nobody had had weapons, they probably just would have punched each other and it would have been fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember the other reporters sort of hanging around, we're biding time, and they're sort of joking about this stuff. And I'm like, oh my God, these people have lost all their humanity, mm-hmm. you know? But then you realize when you're doing this stuff every day, you can't be just depressed every single day or you just can't function, yeah, you right. know? Yeah. And so I think they find these sort of mechanisms. And, and, and I started to see that in myself a little bit where you just start to separate parts of your brain a little. And I, I don't know if that's good or not, but that, that definitely happens. I, I guess I wasn't the type to be sort of traumatized by some of the more gruesome aspects, but I very much when I was working, like I'm a shy person normally. I, I didn't want to go up to people, strangers, and talk to them. So I think I very much had like a work brain that I right. put on yeah. when I was in those situations. Um, and the fact was, usually you were not seeing that gruesome stuff. Yeah. It was it was the rare occasions. So, all right, we're going to dive into the advice question, and I think you'll see that it's, um, you'll, you'll, you're a good person to ask this question because you've had such a crazily awesome range of, um, of experiences, um, where you've picked up all these different skills. And, um, I think you'll, you'll, you'll help yeah, ease well our listener yeah. a little bit. Okay. Hey man, I'm writing for some advice on what to do with my daughter. A little about us. I'm 52. My daughter's 22. I divorced her mother when she was three. And although her mother and I have an amicable relationship, I would not say that we are co-parents. I've been the primary caretaker of our daughter for her entire life. My ex is in her life, but is not a stable or reliable person. I worry about the impact of our separation and our messy history and what effect it's had on our daughter. For my part, I've not really dated anyone seriously and have mostly focused on my career and my daughter for the last 20 years, which brings me to the present day. My daughter is 22 and graduated college last spring. She's always been bright, but an underachiever. She did well, but not as great as I think she was capable of. Since she graduated college, she's not done much with her life. She sat around the apartment for most of the summer, and then she actually got a job as one of those Amnesty International kids that accost you on the street. God, I hate those kids. Yeah, me too. Just kidding. I don't hate them. I hate the system. Yeah. Anyway. She keeps talking out loud about wanting to apply to grad school for esoteric sounding things like geography, which she didn't even study in college. I'm worried about her and don't know what to do. I've mostly kept this to myself. But the more time that goes on, the more anxious I get, and the more I start to worry about the different ways I've fucked her up. I love my daughter and want the best for her, but I'm unsure what to do. Do I push her to do more with her life or stay out of it and let her figure it out? What if she never does? Help. Signed, Sober and Soho. Okay. So so I can kind of try to offer some advice? That- well, I, so to me, it's like there's – it's the dad who's writing, so – I feel like we should be thinking about what it's like to actually be the parent in this situation. Although I bet, I mean, you sound sort of like the perfect person to identify with what it's like to be his kid, you know? Yeah. I mean, first of all, let me just disclose this up front that I've been asked for parenting advice a lot more than I expected. Um, (laughs) Like when I write a book, I dive into questions I find are interesting, not with an intention to like give people tips and with the hope that things resonate in a way that they can it if they find something useful to their life better than I ever could, yeah. obviously. But at the same time, um, so so I just want to confess, you know, that I, I have I have six months of parenting experience in my life, so I feel like a complete <laughs> imposter when people yeah. ask me these kinds of questions. And okay, so just to get that out of the way, yeah. there, um, I think there's sort of two two prongs of this I want to address. Um, the first being uh, his, 
you know, sense that, yeah, the question is something to say, how, how much he's fucked her up and obviously right. feeling that as a big burden. I would feel that as less of a burden because for my last book, I read a ton of behavioral genetics research and in some ways I found it disappointing and in some ways I found it heartening because my takeaway from it was that you, you can certainly ruin a kid with deprivation, no mm -hmm. question about that, but above a certain threshold, which is not all that high, you can't mold them nearly as much as we think we can. Right. Uh, and I, at first I found that disappointing. Yeah. And then I sort of found it kind of heartening because it was like, all right, well, I just need to kind of cover the basics and then they're going to be who they're going to be. And I, I don't have to try to micromanage them like crazy because it doesn't make the difference you think it does anyway. Yeah, I was, so, I was just reading something. Maybe you'll even know who it is. I, I, I'm blanking on her name. I think she's a, a psychologist in, at Berkeley who said that parenting is not carpentry it's gardening oh Allison Gopnik yeah, yeah yeah and I, I I like that idea that's very helpful to me as explain a what she means by what that. she means is like it's not you're not fashioning a person or you know uh, winnowing down the wood to, to create something you're just sort of cultivating a space where whatever is going to grow is going to grow and you're not you don't have to be responsible for what that plant is it's already there you're just allowing it to to thrive yeah and I think it's yeah, I think people who have fraternal twins like start to believe in behavioral genetics. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think that's I think that's true. And there's like unusual findings that in fact there's the siblings within a family have more impact on one another than the parents do. Wow. Um, so there's like more difference in someone, uh, more difference in someone's personality because of their siblings than there are if they were just raised with entirely different parents, um, which is a pretty like sh kind of shocking finding. But I think basically I think that. Um, this father should not attribute anything that's not going well to himself. Like, obviously, you should think about these things, and people have an effect on people, but the degree is is not what people think. Mm -hmm. um, By the way, so while I we're on, just while we're talking about the father, I, I've just been thinking about this a lot. I have um, a uh, six-month-old. Our, our kids were born, my second kid was born right around the same time that your first kid, Dave, was born. Um, uh, and I have a, a nearly three-year-old now, and um, the the challenge of you know parenting goes up exponentially when you have your second. So good good luck with that if you guys are thinking <laughs> about number two, Dave. Um, but um, but I just think about all the time, like um, how before I had kids, um, I was much more critical of my own parents and of other people's parents. And now I'm just like so much more forgiving of yeah. parents. Cause I just think, I just think like the opportunities to do the wrong thing as a parent are constant yeah. and you're going to do the wrong thing mm -hmm. a great deal. Like basically to be a perfect parent, you have to be even better than mother Teresa because <laughs> what it means is that basically at every juncture and, and, um, you know, like my three-year-old now, like nearly three-year-old, like what he wants to do now is just run outside all the time. And basically, unless I chase him and physically scoop him up, which is tiring, um, uh, which I try to do as much as I can, my only other option is to either bribe him, be like, I'll give you some ice cream or candy <laughs> if you don't do that, or to threaten him and be like, you're not going to get your candy or yeah. ice cream if you don't. And, and I just feel so lame and so like, week doing that stuff and like ah oh, this is such bad parenting but i'm also giving myself a break because i'm like if i don't resort to these lazy things sometimes i'm just going to be completely completely exhausted so i don't know that just yeah. it, just just the experience of how hard it is to even be 
a quote unquote bad parent <laughs> has given <laughs> yep. me has given me a lot of empathy for parents. And I just, you know, I feel like um yeah. you know, this guy he's also beating up on himself about, you know, the divorce and stuff. And it's like fifty percent of people are getting divorced. Yeah. And I, I don't know, I just I just want he should cut himself some slack. I want this guy to cut himself a little slack. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, for sure. And I don't think like again, just people aren't, you know, affected the as badly by every like little thing that goes wrong anyway like we have some resilience and you're right i just, i think he should cut himself a lot of slack to, at first as a starting point and by the way i don't think i know you guys said like the amnesty international people are annoying and <laughs> i feel that too on the street but but first of all let's say his daughter it might be a caring person to start with which yeah. is not a bad thing right um and when i one of the other things i had to do for the daily news was start approaching strangers on the street and i used to like walk up and down the block trying to like steal myself to do that oh, i hate and, that and yeah. once i learned how to do it it becomes a useful skill, like trying to establish instant intimacy with a stranger. You know, you got so any that, tips? I, I'm still bad at that. <laughs> I don't. I mean, the thing I tried to remind myself was that, like, if if I can do okay at the start, whatever stupid thing I say to start the conversation, if it goes okay from there, thirty seconds later they will have forgotten that and yeah. we'll be having a conversation. Just try to find some common ground. Be really polite. Don't be judgmental about anybody. All those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and. That's like a marketing skill too, right? Which is, I think, going to be one of the like largest, like, if you can, if you have marketing skill, you're going to have a job, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he should maybe counsel his daughter on how this is actually something useful. Like she's learning a form of marketing skill. Um, and, and that sort of gets to my general approach that how, for how I'm thinking about parenting that, that maybe other people can too, which is... Um, well, and by the way, when you're 22, anything you do is going to give you signal about whether it's something you should be doing or not. So in some ways you can't go all that wrong if you're not being self-destructive. But, um, I, I, this was just a footnote in range, but kind of provided a model for how I think about parenting, which is the army's talent-based branching program. And, and I know it sounds bad to start like my approach to parenting starts with the army, <laughs> uh, but not with the yelling and stuff like that. Um, but the talent-based branching program is this one that the army is one of a suite of programs the army started when they started having trouble retaining the people they identified as the highest potential. Mm-hmm. And that, that sort of happened, uh, in the, with the growth of the knowledge economy where there's a lot more lateral mobility between jobs and suddenly their highest potential people who didn't have much agency over their work within the army would say, well, I can leave and do other stuff. And so they did. And so first the army throws a bunch of money at them for attention and the people who are going to stay, take it, and the people who are going to leave, leave. And that's a, a mere half billion dollars of taxpayer money down the drain. Didn't change retention at all. Then they start these programs like talent-based branching where instead of saying, okay, here's your career track, get up or out, they say, we're going to pair you with a coach and try this one career track and the coach is going to help you reflect on how it fits you. And then this other one, this other one, then try two more. And we'll sort of continually triangulate a better match fit. For you and your coach will will help you with that. And so I sort of view my role in parenting as the coach in the talent-based branching process, mm. where the first thing is to facilitate a bunch of different opportunities to help the person see what's available, and then to help them get the maximum amount of signal about their things they can do and about themselves from each one of those experiences. And and that's sort of the really almost the totality, you know, of what how I see my role, other than keeping the kid alive, basically. Um, did you have someone like that in your life? Cause I'm just, you know, I'm thinking back on, on the story you told us and, and trying to make sense of your trajectory and how useful it would be to have someone to reflect on that with. I, not, not necessarily, but it turned, and maybe that's one thing that I sort of do naturally because the people who do that naturally are called self-regulatory learners, 
where they, and, and that turns out to be a really useful trait yeah. for, for people who like don't plateau in whatever they're doing. And, and the main, if I had to summarize what's most useful about self-regulatory learners, these are people who sort of take accountability for their own progression and they're constantly thinking about whether the thing they're doing is challenging them. You know, they, they, they tend to look for things in what's called the optimal push zone where it's not so hard that they, they can't even start on it, but it's not so easy that they're just doing something they've already done before. And that requires you to sort of reflect on the nature of your challenges and, and on how things fit you constantly. And everyone can learn to be better at that, but some people do it pretty naturally. And I think maybe, maybe that's one thing that I do kind of naturally. Um, and so, yeah, but I think that's, that's a good role that he can play, right? Help her get the maximum amount of signal from each thing that she does. Mm -hmm. Like, what are you learning at Amnesty International? What do you like and what don't you like? And which of these skills might be transferable? Because you're not going to be able to craft someone else's life. And if you're trying to make them do things they don't want to do, that's not going to end up in a good place either. And so I, so I really think the focus should be on first uh, giving himself some slack, realizing that um, a lot of these things are out of his control and have nothing to do with things that he did. Um, and after that, helping her get the maximum amount of learning from each thing she does, both about herself and about her options going forward and, and the skills that could transfer going forward. And I think that's probably about the best general um, advice I could give. But I think very much the line one advice should start yeah. with giving yourself a little slack and realizing that while it's, it's, it's thoughtful of you and conscientious to feel responsible, you're not, you're not responsible for all the things you think you are. And, yeah, Sorry, go, go ahead. ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to say a last thing, because we talked about, we mentioned grit earlier. Yeah. Um, you know, and of course you lose points on the grit survey for changing what you're doing. Um, the, the, the day I subscribed to An Angela Duckworth is the researcher most associated with grit. And I subscribed to her newsletter and the day before my book came out, maybe coincidence, maybe not, doesn't matter. The title of her newsletter was Summer is for Sampling. And it was all about how like kids should do a bunch of different stuff in the summer because you don't really know what you should be gritty at until you've tried a bunch of different things. And then she details how it took her a decade of cycling through things until she found something where she should be gritty. So to me, the advice ultimately comes out as, um, you know, it's been consumed in the public as pick something and stick with it. Right. But, but I think she nuanced it in a sense where it's like be gritty when you should be gritty, right. which I totally agree with. Right. That's, that's tricky advice. I'm not sure where that exactly leaves us. Um, but I also like that she nuanced it that way. And I think it's important for people to know that she said it took her a decade herself and, and she doesn't seem to be saying just pick something and stick with it, but rather be gritty when you should be. Yeah. I, I think your, your book in a way is sort of like, it requires a lot of, uh, wisdom and, and discernment to figure that out. And your book is almost like, uh, operationalizing that, like, what do you have to do to cultivate wisdom, um, so that you know what to focus on and what to stay with? Yeah, I think that's hugely undervalued. Like people undervalue that, again, that term match quality, that, that fit between them and the work they do. And as one of the researchers told me, when you get fit, it looks like grit, meaning that mm. people will, if they, you get them in the right spot for themselves, they will display better work ethic and more resilience, even if they didn't before. And I think we just underestimate how important fit is to kind of the characteristics that we will display in our work. And I think of that as being a college athlete, right? Some of the grittiest people I ever saw on the track were the biggest chickens I've ever seen in the classroom and vice versa. <laughs> right. So I think it's like demonstrably true that grit is a state, not a trait, right? It's a function of the context like someone's that. in. And you can put, you can put people, you could put anybody in a context where suddenly they're not going to be super gritty, right? Where they feel incompetent or, or insecure, whatever it is. One of the things that I've just been thinking about as we've been having, um, 
the conversation um, responding to this question or um, in terms of my own parenting goals, um, I worry that my son will, um, when he gets to, I don't know how old he'll have to be to start thinking about this stuff, you know, maybe middle school or high school, when he finds out that, you know, I went to a really selective college, you know, yeah. and when he finds out that I wrote a novel that got published by Random House. And, mm -hmm. you know, when he finds out that his mother works for the New York Times, like, he's going to feel pressure to be really successful. And um, I'm not just saying this to sound virtue signaling on a podcast. I don't really give a shit if my son is successful, if he's miserable. Mm -hmm. Like, I'd, I'd way mm -hmm. rather him be, you know, a, a you know... Farmer. Far, I, was, I literally was thinking farmer <laughs> who's satisfied and happy and feels good about himself than being some powerhouse, you know, who, with, with a Wikipedia page. And, um, and, I think, and I think that's, so that's just something that I've been thinking about. It. I think, but I think like, um, you know, look, a lot of people um, are attracted to your book, I imagine, because um, they, you know, want to have more successful careers or they want to give it to their kids and, you know, uh, in hopes that their kids will have more successful careers. But it also just strikes me that the approach you're laying out, um, whether or not it wins you fame, respect, prestige, money, um, seems like a better recipe for being a happy person. Um, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, the the some of the research that resonated the most with me in the book was the dark horse project about how people find work that fit them and dependent. A lot of those people were, you know, successful by objective measures for sure, but the dependent variable was fulfillment and they weren't all, um, you know, financially super successful, but they were fulfilled. And in Herminia Ibarra's work, which again, left a big impression on me, the woman whose, whose quote sort of rings in my ears, we learn who we are in practice, not in theory, meaning that you actually have to do stuff. To, you know, your insight into yourself is constrained by your roster of previous experiences. Um, she followed people through these career transitions, and sometimes they became more successful and sometimes not, but they, over time, they tended toward more fulfillment as they kind of changed things. And, you know, I think that's, I think that's underrated. Like, I look at a lot of even my friends from college who went right to law school, and some of them are quite financially successful and also rather miserable and sort of golden handcuffed, you know? Mm. Um, and... I mean, Sam, that's some, obviously you were able, you know, even though you've had that same feeling as me of like, why, why do I keep wanting to change? You certainly were able to shirk the golden handcuffs, right? Like, I think we know some people who, who, who like were ready to throw you a funeral when you were, <laughs> right. Um, right? like, sure. um, and you know, so I think there's probably some of that same thing I had where it's just like, I just have to change and that's it. But I have that same feeling of, of wondering if my kid will have these expectations because of the schools that. Uh, you know, I and his mother went to, and because I was really focused on going to a school that symbolized achievement when I was you know, a teenager, but now in retrospect, I'm kind of like, whatever, yeah. <laughs> you know, but at the time it seemed really important to me. Um, and I look at this, like the college admissions scandal. Mm -hmm. And the only way I can make sense of that is because some of those kids didn't even want to go to college, right? They were like posting Instagram videos, advertising, whatever products being like, college is, what am I doing here? Um, so the only way I can make sense of that is if those, those parents were viewing their kids as basically jewelry, you know, to show off, not even caring really if it was anything right. useful for the kids at all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and I totally agree. Like it's a hard question. Somebody asked, somebody asked me and a few other guys in this email list recently, 
if you could give someone that sort of obsessive drive to succeed, like pass it down to your kid, would you or would you not? Mm-hmm. And that's a really difficult question because I guess in some ways I want it for myself, but I think I think I would probably be risk averse enough for someone else that I would not pass it down. I, I I think about that all the time. I would not want to pass it down. I know that I have it in myself and I've really, you know, it's taken me years to just come to peace with the fact that I'm never going to be just a chill dude. Yeah. Like I'm all, I'm just going to have to contend with the fact that I have this kind of obsessiveness and drive, but figure out how to be as chill and Zen about the fact that I have those impulses as possible. But like, I'd certainly prefer if my kids don't have that. I don't, I don't, I mean, I think, I think there's a side to it that, um, I mean, the, the positive side of having that obsessiveness and drive, um, and maybe this is kind of a Nietzschean way of thinking about things, the positive way, uh, the positive side of that is that you can see like what your better self looks like. You know, you can see, like if you really push yourself to write a book, you know, you can see, wow, like I'm smarter and more creative than I thought I was. Like, right. that's so cool. You know, the negative yeah. side is you're always beating up on yourself. Right. <laughs> but yeah. just yeah. to just to get back to, yeah. to the question, I mean, the 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 flip side um, for this father, and I think every parent's deepest fear is um, that their kid will die at a young age, mm-hmm. right? And and one way that or or just totally ruin their like life flounder. with drugs, yeah. right? I mean, the, the the nightmare of a parent is that their kid will become like a a floundering dilettante, experimenting in all kinds of things, and then when you when you go down the road of experimentation you're going to get into some drug experimentation and then you're going to be a druggie. And, and particularly this guy who signs his name sober in Soho, he at one point was an addict. He's particularly Mm -hmm. fearful about this. And I wonder like, um, you know, um, just, just like maybe you could talk a little bit about the difference between being a dilettante Mm -hmm. and being um, an experimenter and like, you know, and, and how to avoid that slippery slope of just floundering and, you know, sort of, you know, getting into that nightmare scenario of uh, getting into bad experimentation, you know, self-destructive experimentation. Yeah, no, that's an interesting question. And, and by the way, you mentioned worrying about, you know, your son seeing like being published and things like that. I, I figure I have no idea what I'm going to do now or if I'm going to do anything like <laughs> you know, lucrative in the future. And so I think by the time my son grows up, I'll probably be more worried about him viewing me as always having been unemployed. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, no, I think that's a tricky question. And that, that difference between dilettante and, and what I conceive of as a generalist is an important one. And it's a semantic issue, right? This is one of the like things that I, I just couldn't get at that well Um, in the book, the semantic difference between being specialized and being broad. Like there's some areas of research that I write about where it is quantified, like by the number of technology classes people have worked across or the number of genres and comic books they've worked across, things like that. But in most, it's it's not. And so I think we have to kind of think hard about the difference between a dilettante and a generalist. And I think of a dilettante as someone who is not that interested in getting that interested in kind of anything. Um, in fact, in one of the first Q&As I did when this book came out, a guy raised his hand and asked like, we were talking about the usefulness of having different mental models for when you have to solve problems that you haven't seen before. And you, he asked the questions like, let's say you're not a very curious person. Um, how could you get these mental models without actually like reading a lot and trying a lot of different things? <laughs> and I was kind of like, well, there's a couple of books. There's one called Super Thinking now that's kind of like supposed to be this like dictionary of mental models that you could have. But, but I don't think there's a good answer to that question because I think the answer is 
you're going to be more limited than you would be if you actually dove into a lot of things and, and did get interested in them. Um, and, and I don't know exactly what the line is between like how to perfectly draw a line between personal experimentation that teaches you something and self-destructive experimentation. There's a lot of, a lot of people like, you know, some artists and creators, right? It's like from Steve Jobs to like a lot of people's favorite artists, part of their personal experimentation has involved drugs or alcohol in those cases. And we know that the personality trait of openness to experience is, is very predictive. By the way, this is just making me think of something hilarious, but, um, I was stoned when I wrote my, when I decided to create a blog post and start a blog, Uh which led me to get an internship at the nation, which led to my journalism career, which led to me becoming a professional writer. So (laughs) I had that same trajectory. Uh I honestly, had I not been stoned one day and just had the stone thought, Oh, it'd be fun to start a blog. Who knows? (laughs) Anyway, go on. No, but I mean, I think that, I think that, that just proves the advice that we should all just do a bunch of drugs and 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 everything will work out. Um, no, but I mean, but I think that's, I think that's true, right? It's like a lot of people have done that experimentation. Openness to experience is a really, that personality trait is a really high predictor of creativity. And it, it also predicts people's willingness to do things like have a lot of sexual partners or try drugs and things like that. And so, so that's a tough conundrum. So I think the, you know, and you can't, I don't think you can wall your kid off, like, especially an adult, you know, a young adult, like right. you can't stop them. They're going to do what they're going to do. So I, I think the best you can probably do is um, try to keep an eye out for when it gets dangerous. Try to be very supportive of them if it if it does get to that point. You know, my my father's a mental health lawyer. He's often dealing with families of people who have um, become self destructive through through drugs or other you know drug addiction or other types of mental illness. Um, and I think the families that are sort of on the lookout for that earlier and willing to do something rather than just willing to judge early on. Uh, have much better outcomes in the long run, um, but I don't think you can just you can just stop someone. You know, and I think I think sort of emotionally, and this is going to sound funny, but I spent about a year doing reporting on drug cartels, um, or really, really re- more more like it was reporting on the shady stuff our government does in pursuit of drug cartels, just as much as the drug cartels themselves. Mm. Um, and and this is going to sound bad, but some meeting some former cartel members. I was impressed by some of the things they were willing to do. Obviously, they were directing their energies in a bad place and, you know, counterproductive for society. But some of these were young guys, you know, and almost all guys who maybe had some ambition but didn't have a lot of opportunity around them. And somebody came to them and gave them a vision of themselves that they had not conceived and that no one else had either. And, and I felt like it almost sort of like lit something in them that suddenly made guys who might have been kind of listless, uh, ambitious and courageous and heroic, again, to bad ends. But I still found that kind of amazing and, and found that trend across a lot of them. And I, and I do think there's something useful for parents to do in helping their, their kid craft a vision of themselves um, that, is, that is better and, and more positive than maybe would come to them by themselves. And I don't think that's you just have to tell them, but I think you can you can help them be reflective in a way, uh, you know that that does that. But but I don't think you can I don't think anyone can any parent can stop a young adult from self destructive experimentation. Ultimately, it's more of a question of do they pay attention? Do they try to react to it um, as best they can? Yeah. Uh, you know, because because they're going to do what they're going to do. Like you can't when they're when they're a little kid in your house, maybe you can do something about that. But I don't think you can do anything about that with a twenty two year old ultimately. Um. Another thing that um, I've heard you say um, on another podcast um, is 
sort of speaking in praise of of inefficiency and um and maybe you could talk a little bit about um how you've gone about uh your projects inefficiently because i think it does kind of in a way i think parents are so concerned with like their their children like a seeking out like path. a linear efficient yeah. you know uh step by step path and um and, and actually just speaking personally like um I was able to write my novel in part because I, I, my whole life I had been all about the most efficient paths, um, taking shortcuts, uh, you know, like doing things the quickest possible way, like, you know, even skimming books rather than reading them, right? Um, and, um, and with my novel, it was the opposite. It was like I did everything as slowly as possible. Like I would, I, I, first of all, I read tons of novels to find out how to write a novel, um, every time I found uh, something that moved me in a novel or that I thought was a beautiful sentence, I would write it down by hand on a three by five card and then file it away. Like I did the most slow, actually at first I would write it in my journal and then I would write it on a three by five card. Like all the stuff that was, that was so um, the opposite of how I used to do things. But I found that like the slower I did things, even I would write first drafts by hand, right? Which sounds insane, right? But it, it, it turned out to be unbelievably helpful to me because um, it, when I had to type out all this stuff that I had written by hand, I ended up doing editing, right? As I was yeah. typing, I'm like, oh, that sentence actually isn't that good. And, 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 you know, it took me a really, really, really long time, but it was by far the most, um, the, the work, the best work I've ever done, the work I'm most proud of, and, and also just the most satisfying experience I've ever had doing something totally inefficiently. Yeah. And um, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about your experience with that, because I think maybe that's, you know, her path sounds maybe inefficient, but maybe she's onto something. Yeah, that, that's you mentioned a lot of interesting points there. And also, I didn't know that you were like, it sounds like you were like the Silicon Valley guy who's like mainlining Soylent and listening to audiobooks. And oh, totally, totally, like totally. I was, I, I honestly, like, I was, I loved that book, The Four Hour Work Week. I was like, <laughs> I want to be that guy who works for four hours. <laughs> anyway. Um reading fast and slow. Yeah. Um, that, that's an interesting question because it is, I mean, some of the whole, everything I was writing about was like, again, when, you know, sometimes the things that you can do to cause the most short-term apparent progress undermine long-term development. And I think a lot of our thinking and a lot of our education system still come out of, you know, we're formed, uh, in the wake of Taylorism, essentially, you know, the science of management efficiency, pretty much. Um, and sort of, and that, that was kind of actually worked really well, I think, for an industrial economy where you had to have a, a large number of people have certain standardized basic skills, and then they were going to face repetitive challenges in the workplace, and and in many cases stay in this very similar or same exact same type of job for a very long time. But that's not where we are anymore, and I think a lot of systems haven't, you know, like the education system, which by any measure, so people, you know, hate on public education, but by any measure students today have much better mastery of basic skills than um, their parents and their grandparents by any measure. No, It's not even close, actually. Um, but the challenge has gotten so much more difficult because the work world is, is a lot less repetitive and requires you know knowledge creation and creative problem solving and all these sorts of things. And But I think we still have the mindset of Taylorism, that you can approach everything with some sort of understood kind of efficiency, even though that's not what the environment looks like anymore. And so, so for me, well, so one, I used to think about this a little bit in science, right? Now, I would encourage everyone to read, uh, I mentioned this sort of very late in the book, 
Vannevar Bush's um, report, Science, the Endless Frontier, where he, he ran the U.S. science operation during World War II and then wrote this report about successful research culture for the president. Um, and that, uh, by the way, I don't, hopefully you can't hear my six-month-old in the next room. No, he, nope. just, he just woke up. Okay. Um, and that report led to the creation of the National Science Foundation, and it was basically based on the premise that you had to accept a huge amount of inefficiency if you wanted to have the breakthroughs. Because when you're when you don't know exactly what it is you should be doing yet, you don't know exactly what it is you should be doing yet. And so you can't have perfect efficiency and you have to kind of let people explore. And if you don't do that, then you're going to curtail um, the kind of breakthroughs that you have. And I think that's really applicable for personal exploration too, which is, again, our insight into ourselves is constrained by our previous experiences. And if you don't allow some inefficiency, the chances that, that someone is finding the best path as opposed to just one that seems efficient is like almost nil, you know? Right. Um, one thing that's strict, go ahead. I was just gonna, it's okay. I was just gonna say my own writing. Like I, I, you mentioned that, you know, you used to, uh, maybe used to chastise yourself for sort of being ambitious or, um, you know, or, or just being driven. Uh, and now you kind of accept that I used to really chastise myself for being inefficient in my research because my, my sort of early research process for my book is a mess, but I've realized and I end up going down these rabbit holes and I surface, you know, a week or two later, like, how did I ever think I was going to write about that? But I've realized this could be self-justification, but I think that that is actually kind of where I get my competitive advantage because I end up with such a more expansive kind of search function in my research that I end up finding a lot of stuff and connecting a lot of stuff that I think um, other people don't. And it also means that my books end up looking way different than my book proposals mm -hmm. and, and take longer. Uh, and so I've sort of demanded a longer, a longer deadline. Um, but I now think that that inefficiency that I used to try to stamp out is actually like one of my main competitive advantages. I think the thing that, um, just, I have admired about your work and about you as a person is just your, um, comfort with uncertainty. You're just, you're, you know, and it, it just strikes me that like, if there is like an overarching secret to life, uh, <laughs> it's just being comfortable in this zone of uncertainty and, and, and in this zone of not knowing. Um, anyway, we should, we should wrap up. Um, we really appreciate you, um, yeah. taking the time for us. And we always end our podcast, um, asking our guests the same question, which is, uh, is there a piece of advice that somebody told you or that you read or heard somewhere um, that has just stayed with you over the years? And if so, what is it? Yeah, it's, it, two things came to mind when you asked that. And one of them is much more recent, so I can't say it's like stayed with me over the years, but so maybe I'll give two really quick. And the, the recent one is Frances Hesselbein, one of my favorite characters in range who was, you know, took her first real job at the age of 54 and went on to become the CEO of the Girl Scouts and kind of saved them. She kept using this saying to me where uh, it was told to her, you have to carry a big basket to bring something home. And what she meant was you have to keep your mind open to whatever you're doing, and then you'll learn something from it. Mm -hmm. And when I got stuck in, in the writing of range, I ended up taking an online fiction writing course. Um, and one of the exercises was to write a story with no dialogue. And that cued in my head that I'd been way overusing quotes because I was you know, still in my sort of investigative reporter mindset where you want to use a lot of quotes. And I went through the whole manuscript, realized that I was using quotes to um, kind of smooth over things that I didn't understand well enough. 
And it, it kind of cued me to what I had to go back and understand and explain in writing instead of using quotes. And I think it made it a lot better. And it also kind of scared me that I didn't realize that until I was knocked out of my sort of normal, you know, inertia of what I do by taking this class. And, and I've now realized, you know, after that, so I think I've, if you carry that big basket, like there's no amount of beginner's courses in something that you could possibly take and not learn something. I'm kind of convinced of that. Mm. So one day in my neighborhood, I noticed there were a bunch of wizards all of a sudden in the neighborhood. <laughs> and so, so I, I walk around and figure out what's going on. turns out there's like a Japanese, you know, comics and animation conf- uh, conference at a hotel a couple blocks away. So I wander in there and take the beginning Japanese comics writing course. And it's like, I'm probably not going to write a Japanese comic, but it's about narration and pacing and structure and character and all this stuff. Um, and in the, in the online, some of the online writing courses I've taken, people kind of feel like, oh, I already know this stuff. And I'm like, well, I've done a lot of writing. I don't, I'm still finding this valuable. So I think that that approach really resonated with me. For something that longer term advice that I've thought about um, is something I read uh, by this philosopher Bernard Suits in this great book, The Grasshopper. And this first came when I was doing doping reporting and started asking myself why I was doing it. Uh, th- this book is about he responded to this philosophical challenge where some philosophers had said there is no central premise that unites all like games and sports. You can't define them by any one thing. And Suits says, no, that's wrong. The defining um, concept is the voluntary acceptance of unnecessary obstacles. Hmm. And, and, and that really stuck with me. And I sort of thought the way you think about your life and frame your life and, and what you make out of this, you know, sometimes absurd game of life really very much depends on which unnecessary obstacles you choose to to voluntarily accept. And so I always just sort of think about that when I'm deciding whether to take on something new. It's so true, that unnecessary obstacles thing. I mean, I think when I was a younger person, I just fetishized like total freedom, like Wild West, you know, uncharted territory, do whatever I want. And, um, And I was miserable. And like the older I've gotten, the more I've like sort of, place these unnecessary obstacles and boundaries, um, uh, you know, around myself and, uh, the happier I've gotten and, and the more satisfied and fulfilled I've gotten. It's such a funny thing that we almost need to create these like boundaries and obstacles to have this sense of meaning and purpose. Yeah. And I kind of feel like the people that I know who tend only toward convenience and fewer obstacles, I, I don't think those people feel feel very fulfilled honestly um it reminds me of like uh in i don't know middle school or whatever when someone had like their genesis and they'd figured out the crazy cheat codes and like and it was really fun (laughs) for a while and you could do whatever you wanted and then that just stops being fun it's boring you to like do whatever you want you need you need some friction you know yeah it's kind of a weird concept to be like playing a video game where the whole point is the stuff that like blocks your progress right. and to use a code that completely <laughs> circumvents it. I guess if you want to watch it like a movie or just like, you know, build up your, puff your chest out, I'm beating all these people because exactly. I'm invincible. Maybe it could be useful yeah. in that sense. All right, Dave, where can people find you uh, online? And of course, people should, should definitely print. buy yeah. the book uh, Range by David Epstein. Where can people find your other stuff, social media and all that? Um, I'm at David Epstein on Twitter, um, and I am DavidEpstein.com is my website. And I started a, a a free short monthly newsletter that you can sign up for on the website, which is just things I learned in the book that I had to cut like twenty thousand words, and so I put some of it in there and, and oh, just nice. sort of if you're into like mental meanderings and maybe coming across things you're not used to, I I stick some stuff in there that might be of interest to some people. 
All right, everyone, that's it for our show this week. Uh, as always, if you have a question that you need some help with, you can email us at heymanpod at gmail.com or give us a call, 917-426-4326. You can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter at heymanpod. And if you have a sec, uh, leave us a review, please, on uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. Really takes like two seconds. Um, great. Have a great week.